open your Bibles to Psalm, uh, Psalm 78. If you have one of our Bibles, uh, one of the black Bibles over there at the uh, table or the shelves over there, it's on page 514 in those Bibles. We just finished up our series last week going through the book of Genesis. We were in Genesis uh, for, for the better part of the last year, and Lord willing, we'll be starting a new series going through the Gospel of John here in a few weeks, but I want to... Um, I want to just kind of let you know what we're doing in between, because there's about four weeks in between before we start, and I thought it would be fitting in the meantime, before we jump into the Gospel of John, to, uh, to, to, uh, to look at a passage today that not only helps fill in some of, of Israel's history between Genesis and John's Gospel, which is a lot of history, right? But, but it also helps us see why Israel's history is still important to us today. And so, so if you care, if you care about... Uh, the spiritual health, uh, your own spiritual health, first of all, but if you also care about the spiritual health of your children or your grandchildren or just the next generation, again, even if they're not your children and the generations to come, then Psalm 78 is a psalm that you you will not want to forget. And so um, this is the word of God, and uh, I want to I pray and ask the Lord to, to speak through me and, and let his word uh, be the thing that you hear, okay? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is good, that it guides us straight to Jesus, and we pray that it would do exactly that, that your spirit would lead us to behold our Savior through this psalm. For your glory and our good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Songs, songs teach. Do you know that? Songs teach. Think about how you learn the ABCs, right? It's put to music. Maybe you're already thinking of other things that you've learned because they, there was a tune set behind it. Music is a really good tool. It helps us remember, uh, uh, remember information. But many songs don't just teach us information. They, they teach us a, a message that, that's meant to shape our hearts and minds. Today, we're going to look at a song in the Bible, Okay, a psalm, that's what the psalms are, they're, they're songs. And even though we no longer have the music for it, we still have the message that it's conveying. And here's the main point of that message. This is what we're going to see in this, this morning. We must remember and teach what God has done from generation to generation. We must remember and teach what God has done from generation to generation. If anybody wants to come up with a little jingle for that to help you remember, go for it, Okay. You can sing it at the end. All right. Let's dig in. Psalm 78, verse 1. Actually, right before that starts, it says, A masculine of Asaph. My people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare the wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. Things that we have heard and known that our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from, our ch- from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and his wondrous works that he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and he set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. That's Deuteronomy 6. That's what we just did in our prayer time. So that a future generation... Children yet to be born might know. They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their ancestors 
a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. A masculine of Asaph. Asaph was a Levite who served under King David as one of the chief musicians in the, in the tabernacle sanctuary. Masculine is this Hebrew term that, that, that really has a, a, an unclear meaning. There's some scholars that think it means instruction, which, I mean, the, the opening line, he says what? Hear my instruction, right? While others think it's a musical term that provides info about how to play the song, if you go through the Psalms, there is that kind of information that's listed in front of some of, uh, of them as well. Um, they even tell you what the tune is, it, it, you know, how to play the tune and things like that. Either way, though, here, Asaph made the purpose of the psalm clear uh, to those who would sing it, right? This is a historical psalm. This is a psalm that recounts the, the events in Israel's past in order to instruct future generations, but the events are recounted in such a way that it causes those who sing this psalm, remember, it's a song. People are going to sing this. It's recounted, these events are recounted in a way that, that causes those who sing this psalm to, to contemplate God's patience in spite of his people's sin. Why? Here's the purpose. Verse 7, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep God's commands. The generation that forgets God's great works is the generation that forgets its own great need. The generation that forgets God's great works is the generation that forgets its own great need. The generation that, that fails to put its confidence in God will end up putting its confidence in someone or something else that cannot do what only God can do, accurately diagnose this desperate spiritual condition of our hearts and graciously provide the lasting cure. Asaph was from King David's generation he actually wasn't alive during the events that he recounts in this psalm. These happened years before he was ever around. In verse 3, he says that these are things that, that we have heard and known that our ancestors passed down to us. And in these opening verses, Asaph's not only passing these things down to others and calling them to put their confidence in God, but he's also then calling them to take what they've heard and then, hey, pass it on again. You teach it to others. Don't just hear this and let it fall to the wayside. Take it in and then send it out. They need to teach it to future generations so that those generations might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but, but keep his commands. It's important that each generation takes God's words, his word, and his works and applies them to their heart because the heart is what directs the life. It's the central hub of our belief and our behavior. God's works and God's words are meant to shape his people in each generation internally so that their lives reflect him externally, and then, then they won't be like the ancestors, right? A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Is that how you're, you're, you want your family to remember you? The rest of this psalm is going to give two history lessons, two sections here that invite the worshiper to contemplate 
both the rebellious hearts of people and the redeeming heart of God. It's going to show us God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people, his faithfulness to discipline them in their disobedience, and his faithfulness to cover their guilt with his grace. Let's go into the first history lesson, verse 9. The Ephraimite archers turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wondrous works that God had showed them. Now, it's not entirely clear what Asaph is referring to in verse 9. Ephraim was an individual tribe, right? We, we found that out in Genesis. But it's also a name that was used for the entire nation at times, uh, mute, uh, uh, synonymous with, with the nation of Israel. There's several events that, that uh, verse 9 could be describing here. But regardless of the specifics, the point that Asaph is making is clear. God's people turn their backs on him. They turn their backs on the Lord. And in verse 11, he gives the reason why. He says, they forgot. They forgot what God had done, the wondrous works that he had shown them. But, but we need to understand, this wasn't that they were simply absent-minded, right? Like it just slipped their minds. No, God's works had become unimportant to them. There's a big difference there. His works hadn't, hadn't slipped their minds, but, but his works had gone out of their minds. In fact, they put them out. And what were those works? Look at verse 12. He worked wonders in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt, the territory of Zon. He split the sea and brought them across. The water stood firm like a wall. He led them with a cloud by day and with a fiery light throughout the night. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundant as the depths. He brought streams out of the stone and made water flow down like rivers. Verse 13 is describing the parting of the Red Sea. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's during the exodus from Egypt. I found this fascinating. God split the water in order to provide solid rock so his people could cross the sea on dry ground. Then later, he split the solid rock to provide water so his people could have something to drink in the dry desert. Isn't that amazing? The water from the Red Sea stood firm like a rock wall, and the firm stone in the wilderness flowed like a river. Who else can do that? Who else can do that? God provided for his people in powerful ways and, and, and that gave his people plenty of reason to trust him. Did they trust him? Look at verse 17. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They deliberately tested God, demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Is God able to provide food in the wilderness? Look. He struck the rock and water gushed out. Torrents overflowed. But can he also provide bread to furnish or furnish meat for his people? Instead of putting their confidence in God as people continued to sin against him. Listen, seeing is not always believing. It would be amazing if that were always true, wouldn't it? If seeing would be believing. As we get into the Gospel of John, we're going we're to see this This. Reality. Seeing is not always believing. They saw God's works, but they still refused to trust him. Verse 18 says that they deliberately 
tested God. In, in the Hebrew, literally, it says they tested God in their hearts. In their hearts. The central hub of their belief and behavior, it was corrupt. They weren't passive in their response to God's works. They were, critically, they were actively critical of God in their response. They weren't in awe of, of God's power. They weren't grateful or satisfied with his provision. They were testing God's patience. And they treated the praiseworthy acts of the Lord like parlor tricks. You ever done that? Can you imagine? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, he gave us more water to drink than we need. But where's the food? How about some bread? How about some meat? Where are these things? You know what they were asking? Can't God give us what Egypt gave us? How do you think God responded to them? Let's find out. Look at verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard and became furious. Then fire broke out against Jacob and anger flared up against Israel because they did not believe God or rely on his salvation. God was furious with his people. Remember, this is a contemplative psalm. Up to this point, God has been acting on behalf of his people. Asaph has helped us focus on the wondrous works of God that are, that are, are, are directed toward the good of his people, his care for them. But here, his works are acting against them. This change in God's actions should, should cause the singer of the psalm to think about the reason why. Like, what, what, what happened here? What's different? Asaph gives us the reason in, in verse 22. God's anger flared up against Israel because they did not believe God, and they did not rely on his salvation. Their hearts were corrupt. The central hub of their belief and behavior uh, caused them to go astray. Think about this for a moment. God had more obedience from fire and water than he did from his people. And his people were more concerned with getting God to do what they wanted than they were with doing what God wanted. God's anger toward his people was not sinful. God's anger toward anyone is never sinful. Psalm 119, or, uh, 118, 65, you are good and you do what is good. We need to understand God's anger is good. He's calling wrong, wrong. God's anger toward his people was not sinful. Their antagonism toward him was sinful. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of, a living God, of the living God. Look at how the Israelites fell into God's hands after they deliberately tested him and demanded the food that they craved. Verse 23, He gave a command to the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained manna for them to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. People ate bread, the bread of angels. He sent them an abundant supply of food. He, he made the east wind blow in the skies and drove the south wind by his might. He rained meat like, on them like dust and winged birds like the sand of the seas. He made them fall in the camp, the, the, the birds, all around the tents. 
The people ate and were completely satisfied, for he gave them what they craved. So far, so good, right? Verse 30, before they had turned from what they craved, while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger flared up against them, and he killed some of their best men. He struck down Israel's fit young men. God actually provided for his people. He provided for them, right? He, he gave them food in spite of their grumbling and complaining, in spite of their flat-out disregard for the Most High God and, and their lack of gratitude for all that he'd already done. He'd, he'd preserved their lives already by giving them water in the desert. He'd preserved their lives already by splitting the sea and letting them cross and then closing it over the enemies that were coming to kill them. He cared for them. And even in their grumbling and complaining, he gave them food. He gave them manna from heaven that sustained them for 40 years while they wandered in the wilderness. God preserved his, his people as a whole, but he also put to death those individuals who did not believe God or rely on his salvation. They craved meat, and so he, he gave them what they craved. And while they were still chewing on it, he struck them with a plague. He killed some of their strongest and most reliable men. Why? Because they didn't rely on his strength to sustain them. God was purifying his people by removing those rebellious ones. He hadn't given up on his people. You'd think the ones that he would spare, that he spared, would, would learn from this, right? Look at verse 32. Despite all this, they kept sinning, and they did not believe his wondrous works. He made their days end in futility, their years in sudden disaster. The people continued in sin because they continued in unbelief. Their behavior wouldn't change until their hearts changed. Instead of trusting God to lead them into the promised land to de and defeat their enemies, the people of Israel criticized God and said that it would have been better for them to die back in Egypt or in the wilderness than to die at the hand of the Canaanites. So just as God gave them the food that they craved, God also gave them the death that they craved. Verse 33 here says that they, he made their days end in futility. The whole generation of Israelites, an entire generation of them, died in the wilderness with nothing to show for their lives except for grumbling and, comp and complaining. In total disregard for God. It says he made their years end in disaster, literally in terror. In terror. A little over 600,000 Israelites died in the wilderness because they had conspired against the Lord. More than half a million. And their children wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until those who had rebelled against God were dead. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Look at verse 34. When he killed some of them, the rest began to seek him. They repented and searched for God. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer, but they deceived him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were insincere toward him, and they, they were unfaithful to his covenant. Yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their iniquity and he did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all his wrath. He remembered that they were only flesh, 
a wind that passes and does not return. There's a glimmer here. The Israelite community started to pay attention, right? I think when you lose 600,000 of your people, you might start to think about some things. They began to understand that they could not continue in sin and expect the most high God to do nothing about it. Why? Because he's good. And he cannot let bad go without bringing that to justice. And so instead of turning their backs on God in rebellion, they turned toward him in repentance. But, but what does it tell us? The, their repentance was short-lived because their hearts were insincere toward him. They still needed new hearts in order to bring about the lasting change in their lives. But this time, instead of putting them to death, God responded to their lip service with long-suffering. Their short-lived repentance with long-lived patience and compassion in his mercy. The Lord atoned for their iniquity. He, he covered their sin and he forgave them and he, he turned away his wrath from them. He disciplined them, yes, but he did not empty the fullness of his righteous wrath on them. God understood their need even when they didn't understand it themselves. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Remember, this is a contemplative psalm. As you're singing this, you're thinking about these things. It's meant to guide the singer in worship to God by meditating on his wondrous works. Over the past several verses, the psalm guided the singer to focus on God's holiness and his justice through his works of judgment. That right there alone makes God worthy of worship. But this part... This part guides the singer to consider God's works of mercy, and that also makes God worthy of worship. Think about the, these lyrics from one of the songs that we sang together this morning. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. When we sing about what we deserve and what God graciously gives us instead, how much more does it stir our hearts to rejoice in him? It leads us into deeper worship of the most high God who is our rock, the, the true source of our living water and who is our redeemer, the one who's rescued us, not just from our enemies, but most importantly from our own rebellious hearts. That's why we sing these songs that we do here at Redeemer. These are songs that direct our hearts to God by helping us contemplate the rich gospel truths that we are prone to quickly forget. When I sing lyrics like the ones that I, I just read, I'm not just singing words. I'm confessing my deepest need. I'm admitting my own inability to change my own rebellious heart. I'm acknowledging that God's right response to my sin is judgment, his judgment upon me I'm proclaiming the glorious good news that, that Jesus took my punishment so that I could know what? God's love 
and his grace. When I meditate on, when I contemplate those realities, even as those words are coming out of my mouth, it stirs my affection for my Savior so greatly that by the time we get to the chorus, how can you not help but burst out, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. You know what's more? Maybe this is why my mic was shut off this morning while we were singing. When I sing those words with my brothers and sisters who know those truths, not just externally, but internally, and they are declaring those things to me as we declare those things to God, how much more is God's grace magnified. That he hasn't just rescued me, but that he's rescued so many more. And when we think about the, 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 that we come together on the Lord's Day on Sundays every week, and we're not the only ones that are doing this, that there are churches all over the world that are gathering in public and in secret, declaring these same truths, oh my goodness, The mercy of God is magnified beyond anything that we can grasp. And yet, God in his grace allows us to understand it through his spirit as we declare these truths together. We need to sing songs that instruct our hearts as they stir our affections toward God who has lavished his grace upon us through his son. I'm fairly confident, unless, like I said, one of you comes up with a, a jingle, that you won't leave here today humming the main point of this message. Okay? I did try to make it rhyme a little bit, but that was kind of by accident. We must remember and teach what God has done from generation to generation, right? You probably won't leave humming that. But there's a good chance that the words of one of the songs that we sang will be stuck in your head as you walk out those doors. And, and my prayer is that, that, that those don't go away as you go on deeper into the week. But the Lord stirs your heart to worship because those are in your mind. You're contemplating those. You're, you're meditating on those things that they lead you to deeper contemplation and meditation in God's word. When I sing these truths and I go, man, is that really true? You know what I can do? I can go here and I can see that, that yes, they are true. God's word is faithful to convey the beauty of the gospel to us. This first section of Psalm 78 is a history lesson that reveals the cycle of sin and rebellion of God's people toward God and God's response of judgment toward his people, but this history lesson ends with a picture of hope for those who don't want to remain rebellious but understand that they can't end the cycle themselves. This, this second section of Psalm 78 is another history lesson. Like the first, it begins by pointing the worshiper back to the exodus from Egypt. Look at verse 40. 
how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They, they constantly tested God and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power shown on the day he redeemed them from the foe when he performed his miraculous signs in Egypt and his wonders in the territory of Zon. He turned their rivers into blood and they could not drink from their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which fed on them and frogs which devastated them. He gave their crops to the caterpillar and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He killed their vines with hail and their sycamore fig trees with a flood. He handed over their livestock to hail and their cattle to lightning bolts. He sent his burning anger against them, fury, indignation, and calamity, a band of deadly messengers. He cleared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but delivered their lives to the plague. He struck the firstborn, all the firstborn in Egypt, the first progeny of the tents of Ham. Once again, the failure of God's people is emphasized here. It starts off saying, man, how often, how often they rebelled against God. How often did they grieve God? How they constantly tested and provoked God. Literally in the Hebrew it says again and again and again. Once again, the reason was because they did not remember his power shown on the day that he redeemed them from the foe. Again, they weren't absent-minded. It didn't just slip their minds. They just didn't care. They didn't care. How often do we forget the day that God redeemed us? I'm not talking like you need to remember the exact date that Christ saved you. But how often do we forget what we were like before he redeemed us. Go read Titus 3 and that will remind you. How often do we forget the day that God redeemed us? How easily do we lose interest in remembering that he rescued us from these things, from ourselves? How quickly do we lose sight of the fact that our greatest foe is not a sinful nation, but our own sinful nature? our own sinful hearts. These verses highlight the 10 plagues that God inflicted on the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. But if you, if you were, were looking there, maybe you noticed that Asaph only mentioned six of the 10. Only six of the 10 plagues. By leaving some of them out, he's, he, he's jump-starting the memories of, of the, the psalm singers, the people that are worshiping through this psalm. He's helping them finish the list in their own minds. In fact, all throughout this psalm, Asaph gives just enough details to point his readers back to the fuller accounts in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel. Nine different books of the Bible are included here in Psalm 78. We have plenty, plenty of things to go meditate on, right? By doing this, he's helping the worshipers contemplate the wondrous works of God in Scripture so that they can remember what their ancestors had forgotten, God's power to redeem his people. Here, they're once again directed to contemplate God's righteous judgment, but this time the focus is on God's judgment against his enemies in contrast to his care for his people. Look at verse 52. He led his people out like sheep and guided them like a flock in the wilderness. He led them safely and they were not afraid, but the sea covered their enemies. 
He brought them to his holy territory, to the mountain his right hand acquired. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned their inheritance by lot and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. By his own power, God delivered his people out of the hands of the Egyptians, and he delivered the Canaanites into the hands of his people. By his own might, God brought the Israelites out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise. Verse 52 says that God led them like a shepherd, again, leading the worshiper to sing of God's compassion and his care for his people. He led them out safely, guided them along the way safely, and they were not afraid. These generations had seen God's display of his power against their enemies on their behalf. They'd seen his kindness and and his care for them. That should have motivated them to trust and obey him, right? But again, their hearts remained unchanged. Look at verse 56. Don't you just want it to say something else? But they rebelliously tested the Most High God, for they did not keep his decrees. They treacherously turned away like their ancestors. They became warped like a faulty bow. They enraged him with their high places and provoked his jealousy with their carved images. The height of Israel's rebellion came in the form of idolatry after they entered the promised land. They worshiped foreign gods, fake gods, gods instead of the God who rescued them and redeemed them like their ancestors before them. They treacherously turned away from the Lord because their hearts were not loyal to him and their spirits were not faithful to him. They ignored the praiseworthy acts brought about by the hand of God. They ignored the praiseworthy acts brought about by the hand of God, and they foolishly instead praised statues that they had carved themselves by their own hand. Once again, they provoked the Most High God to focus his righteous anger back onto them. Look at verse 59. God heard and became furious. He completely rejected Israel He abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh, the tent where he resided among mankind. He gave up his strength to captivity and his splendor to the hand of a foe. He surrendered his people to the sword because he was enraged with his heritage. Fire consumed his chosen young men and his young women had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword and the widows could not lament. Instead of remembering the praiseworthy acts of the Lord... Instead of putting their confidence in him, generation after generation of Israelites rejected the God whose praiseworthy acts were for their good. The people had ignored God for so long that God removed his presence from them as an act of severe discipline against the nation and as an act of severe judgment against the individuals who had treacherously turned away from him. Look at the verbs here in these verses. These are heartbreaking. God abandoned the tabernacle, the place where his presence dwelled. He gave up his strength and and splendor, the Ark of the Covenant. He gave it over to the hand of the foe, the Philistines. 
He surrendered his people to the sword. God turned away from the people who had turned away from him. He allowed the Philistines to kill 30,000 Israelite soldiers along with the wicked priests who had led God's people astray. God had completely rejected his people, his heritage, his chosen ones. Look at that language. How heartbreaking is that? But God would not abandon them forever. Look at verse 65. The Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior from the effects of wine. He beat back his foes. He gave them lasting disgrace. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over his people, Jacob, over Israel, his inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with skillful hands. When God was with his people, he continued to display his wondrous works to them, even though they continued to ignore not only those works, but God himself. When God removed his presence from his people, they couldn't see his works even if they were looking for them. Now, Asaph describes God's withdrawal here as if God had fallen asleep, but then God awoke like a warrior from the effects of wine. It's a weird picture, right? Remember, this is a contemplative psalm. It's designed to coax the worshiper to think deeply about God and his relationship to his people. This peculiar picture that Asaph gives is not meant to portray God as an out-of-control drunk. That's actually a more accurate picture of the people throughout this psalm, is it not? Whatever drowsiness, whatever inaction or lack of care that God may have appeared to have gave way to the reality of decisive action on behalf of his people, his heritage, his chosen ones. The point is that if, even if people thought that God did not care, the reality is that God cared. Even if the people thought that he had forgotten them, the reality is he had not forgotten them. He was still ready to fight for them, and that's exactly what he did. And once again, God delivered his people from their enemies. He, he stood up and he, and he fought back the foes. But instead of reestablishing his tabernacle and his presence in Shiloh, in the northern territory of Ephraim, God established Jerusalem, a.k.a. Mount Zion, in the southern territory of Judah as the new place for his sanctuary. He appointed and he anointed a new leader for his people, David of the tribe of Judah. We saw this foreshadowed in the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah back in Genesis chapter 49. In fact, I referred to this, these verses in this psalm. All throughout this psalm, Asaph continues to point to the need for the cycle of rebellion to end among God's people, but he also makes it clear that in order for that to happen, God would have to intervene because his people just did not have a behavioral problem. They had a heart problem. And they couldn't fix it on their own. What was God's answer for the sinful hearts of his people and their ongoing pattern of sin and rebellion against him? Give them a king who would shepherd them with a pure heart and skillful hands. God called David a man after his own heart. And yet we know from scripture that David himself was not perfect. David committed some grievous, grievously sinful acts against God and against others. But his repentance was not lip service to God. 
It was genuine because his heart was truly sincere toward his rock and redeemer. That's why Asaph can say he shepherded his people with a pure heart. One study Bible describes this psalm as one of constant disbelief in the face of unimaginable grace and even more grace being granted in the face of disbelief. Spot on, right? This psalm is a song that each generation of Israelites needed to learn for themselves and teach to the next generation so that they would all be reminded of their own propensity to turn away from God and of their need to rely on Him instead of themselves. It's a song that emphasizes God's patience in spite of His people's sin. It's a song that points God's people to their need for new hearts that are guided by a shepherd king. As the Holy Spirit directed Asaph to write this psalm, Asaph invited God's people to sing this psalm in gratitude to God for answering that need by giving them David. But now that the Holy Spirit has revealed the fullness of the gospel to us through the New Testament writers, how much more then should we look at this psalm and sing in gratitude to God for answering that need by giving us Jesus? Asaph rejoiced in the provision of an imperfect and temporary shepherd king in his day. We get to rejoice in the, in the provision of a perfect and permanent shepherd king in our day. Jesus is God the Son who took on flesh when he was born as an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. He's the perfect shepherd king because he lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. His heart was loyal and his spirit was faithful to God. He perfectly kept God's covenant. He never turned away like all of the previous generations had, not even once. And in the most compassionate and praiseworthy act of the Lord, Jesus atoned for the iniquity of his people, turning God's righteous anger away from us and taking it upon himself by dying on the cross in our place. God the Father unleashed all of his wrath on his own son, wrath that we deserve for our constant sinful rebellion against the most high God. Jesus is the permanent shepherd king because he purchased our forgiveness with his own blood. And then he rose from the grave on the third day. And now he's seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, ruling on behalf of his people, guiding us along the way by his Holy Spirit and by his word until he returns to put an end to sin and Satan and death once and for all. The refrain we kept hearing in Psalm 78, but they continue to sin, that's going to end. That's going to end. He's going to bring us into his eternal kingdom where we will never, never forget his wondrous works. Why? Because we will not ever stop declaring them. This glorious reality is promised to all who believe God and rely on his salvation in Jesus Christ. It's for those who understand that their greatest need is for a new heart that is loyal to God and a new spirit that is faithful to God. It's for those who recognize that they deserve judgment for their sin and who seek God in true repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God in, to, to rescue and, and, and turning to him for forgiveness, turning away from unbelief and turning to God in faith by believing the wondrous works of Jesus Christ. So will you put your confidence in God or will you continue to rebel against him in unbelief? 
Don't continue to give God lip service with an insincere heart. Honestly seek him and you will find him. He actually promises that to us. And when you find him, you will know his love and grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I don't think it's a shock to say that we live in a stubborn and rebellious generation that's constantly turning away from God. Isn't it then vital that we pass down to the next generation what's been passed down to us, these praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and his wondrous works that he's performed through his son, Jesus Christ, don't they need to hear and know these things that we have heard and known? We need to call them not only to hear God's instruction and listen to God's word, but also then to teach it to the generations that follow them and that, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget his works in Christ so that they will keep his commands in the freedom and the reliance upon their perfect and permanent shepherd king. We must remember and teach what God has done. From generation to generation, each generation must learn about the rebellious hearts of people and the redeeming heart of God. Each generation must learn about God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people, his faithfulness to discipline them in their disobedience, and his faithfulness to cover their guilt in his grace. Many generations have come and gone since Asaph wrote this psalm under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Asaph had future generations in mind. Children yet to be born. The Holy Spirit had generations in mind too. And now here we are. A future generation with an even fuller picture of the shepherd king than, than Asaph himself had when he wrote this. The Holy Spirit preserved this psalm and put it in our Bibles so that we would contemplate our own great need and rejoice that God has met our need through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's remember God's faithfulness to us in spite of our sin. Let's teach the next generation to see God's faithfulness to them in spite of their sin. Let's remember the eternal hope that we have in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and teach the next generation to do the same. Let's show them what confidence in God looks like. Belief in his word and reliance upon his work of salvation through his son. And let's, let's teach our kids to sing. Let's teach our kids to sing because songs help us remember the praiseworthy acts of the Lord. And songs give us a way to praise the Lord for those praiseworthy acts. Let's teach this generation these things so that long after we're gone, a future generation, a generation not yet born, might know and believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the clear picture it gives us of your faithfulness to thousands of generations, even though each generation is utterly unfaithful to you. We thank you that we have a perfect and permanent shepherd king in Jesus Christ. And we pray that by his spirit, 
according to your word and alongside your church, you would continue to lead us and guide us in your compassion and grace all the way to the finish line. And when we get there, that we would leave this place, this world, confident that the next generation knows the same God that we do and that they too will lead other generations to come to your glory and goodness to us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.